as I was preparing for this morning, I did a little bit of research, and I found that in the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great had a personal sculptor, and his name was Lucipus. Lucipus was a great sculptor, and as I thought about that, I thought, you know, if your boss's last name is The Great, you should probably be pretty good at your work. So Lucipus actually was really a great sculptor, and he was very well known for his remarkable detail in all of his work. But he made a sculpture that was just most interesting, and I'm going to show that to you. This is what it looks like, and the sculpture's name is Kairos. I want you to take a look at that for a minute. And there are a couple of details that I'd like to point out to you as you're looking at Kairos. First of all, you're going to notice that he's standing on his toes. Do you see that? How he's, he's kind of standing on his tiptoes there. And you can also see that on his heels or on his feet there, he has, he has wings. And if you look closely at his head, you'll see that the hair in the front of his head is very, very long. But what you may struggle to see from where you are by looking at this image is that on the back of his head is completely bald. Did you see that? So he's got a lot of hair in the front, but on the back of his head, he's completely bald. So this is Kairos. And it's a beautiful work by this sculptor, Lucifus. Many people think that this sculpture was placed in the public marketplace in a city known as Sikuon, which is just a short distance to the northwest of the city of Corinth. But as I look at this thing, to me it is just fascinating as I study it. And there was an ancient poet by the name of Poseidopus. And he came along one day, and below this sculpture, he wrote an interpretation of what he believed was the sculptor's intent in making Kairos. And I'd like to share that with you if I may, but I want to do it a little bit later. So I want you to just take a look at this picture, and I want you to just capture this in your mind. And I'd like you to just hold on to that as we make our way through the message this morning, if you would do that. So as you know, almost every week as we've made our way through the first four or five chapters of the book of Ephesians, I've begun our message with a recap to make sure that we have the proper context of Paul's intent here firmly rooted in our hearts before we move on. And as you all know, in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has outlined for us our privileged position before God as we are in Christ. And that's the word that he uses, that we are in Christ. And then when you get to chapter four, Paul turns a corner and he tells us that based on our privileged position in Christ, this is how we are to peripatize. Oh, this is how we are to walk around, literally how we are to make our way around as believers. And what he's saying is that as a course of life, based on your privileged position in the first three chapters, this is how you are to conduct yourselves as a pattern of life. And then he tells us that the walk or the daily conduct of a believer is one of lowliness. It is one of humility in contrast to that of the world which seeks its own glory. Then he goes on to say that we're to live in unity in the church. We are to be a united body of Christ. We're not to be splintered. We're not to be fractured and broken in contrast with every other human institution. Did you know that? And then toward the end of chapter 4, as you'll remember, he tells us that our habits are to be different from those who do not know God. He goes on to say that we are to conduct ourselves in sacrificial love in contrast to the world's emotional and self-serving love. Our love is to be different. And then last week, we learned that we are to walk in the light. We are to walk in absolute light in contrast with the rest of the world who taps along and just drags themselves through complete abject darkness. And today, Paul is going to draw one more contrast for us which is going to distinguish 
how we are to walk around, how we are to conduct ourselves as a pattern of life as compared to those people who do not know God. And I trust that you'll be challenged by this this morning because the contrast is very, very valuable. And it's found in the the first verse of our passage for today. So I'm going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verse 15 to begin with. And this is what it says, reading from the ESV. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. I want to just stop there for a moment if I could. Don't you think that's good advice? Isn't that great advice from Paul? Paul says, look carefully how you walk. Don't walk around. Don't conduct yourselves as people who are unwise, but conduct yourselves as people who are wise. And I think that's just great advice. Conduct yourselves as people who are wise. Don't walk around like a bunch of fools. That's what he's saying. But how do we put that into practical terms as we think about that? How do we put that into practical terms? I want to help you understand that contrast this morning. Did you know that the Bible has a lot to say about foolishness and wisdom? Did you know there's a lot of instruction in the Scripture about foolishness and wisdom, but there's probably no greater commentary on that very topic than what you're able to find in the book of Proverbs. It's just filled with it. So what does it mean to be foolish? Have you ever thought of that? If you were to look it up in a modern dictionary, you'd probably see it defined as somebody who is unwise or somebody who does things that are imprudent. Listen closely to this. It is to say that the fool is someone who exercises poor judgment. The fool is someone who exercises poor judgment. He doesn't think before he acts. Think about that. He's not cautious. I like this one. He is unaware of the dangers that may result from his actions. Sound like anybody you know? I can tell you who it sounds like. Sounds like me. I can remember when I was a kid. That was me. I mean, that sums me up. And my parents used to love to quote Proverb 22.15 to me as I was growing up. And of course, when you're a good parent and you're going to quote Scripture to your kids, you always have to use the King James Version, right? And this is what it sounds like. They would say this, Son, Proverb 22.15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And then, you know what happened, right? Of course, Anytime I got that scripture quoted to me in the King James Version, I knew it was going to happen. And it was usually followed by what my dad used to say. He thought he was so funny. He used to say, it's time for us to have a board meeting. Because my dad was a pastor, and, and so we had a board meeting. And that was his funny way of saying that it was time for me to get spanked with a little board that he used to keep in his bedroom, and he used it as a rod of correction. That was a board meeting. And so we were going to have a board meeting. So let me just tell you that based on the truth of this scripture in Proverbs 22... And based on the number of board meetings I had as a child, I was a pretty big fool. (laughs) I was pretty foolish. But you'll be happy to know that my older brother was an even bigger fool than I was (laughs) because (laughs) he had had even more board meetings than I did. But do you know something? Funny as that is, the truth of the matter is that people are just born foolish. It's true. People are born foolish. They come into this world as fools. They come into this world as people who are not discerning. They come into this world as people who don't understand what happens when they make a particular decision. They don't understand the consequences. They come into this world as foolish people. Isn't that true? That's how we're born. And the job of the godly parent is to correct that child and to steer him away from foolishness and toward the wisdom of Jesus Christ. That's the job of a godly parent. 
And as a godly parent, the very first, the most important thing that you could ever guide your child to do to direct him toward wisdom is to begin in Psalm chapter 14. And you can go right to verse 1, and this is what it says. The fool says in his heart, there is what? There is no God. That is the first thing that characterizes a fool. The first thing that the fool does, the first thing that an unwise person does, is he says that there's no God. That's what makes him a fool. This is everyone from the atheist who swears that God does not exist. He denies the very existence of God, even though the book of Romans tells us that it has been written in his heart and the creation of the entire world is a testimony to the existence of God. He denies the existence of God and it goes all the way to the one who has been taught the truth and refuses to act on that truth by worshiping God and submitting to God's control of his life. Everyone in that whole entire realm is what the Bible calls a fool. It's foolish for you to do that. Ultimately, the fool who denies God will progress and he'll reach a point where where we get to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 19 where we see that he makes a mock of the guilt offering. That's what the Bible tells us. That the fool makes a mock of the guilt offering. So what that means is that sin is funny to him. Do you know anybody who thinks that sin is funny? Sin is funny to him. He makes a mockery of and he pokes fun at the goody goods who honor God. That's what he does. He makes fun of the people who honor God. He makes fun of the people who exercise self-control. He makes fun of the people who have incrotea, the ability to discipline themselves and to stay focused and to behave in a way that honors God. He makes fun of those people. He laughs about it and he shoots his mouth off and he begins to instruct other people and he begins to talk to other people, teaching them the foolishness that's built up in his own heart. So he spits forth his own foolishness and he teaches other people to behave just like he does. He tells them that good is evil and he tells them that evil is actually good. Do you see that all around you right now? I've got to tell you that uh, I was stunned When I walked into a high school a couple of months ago, and the very first thing that I saw standing at the entryway of the high school was a great big eight-foot-by-eight-foot banner declaring that evil was good and encouraging us to celebrate evil. The message of the Word that these people speak, the message of their foolish hearts, is that those Bible thumpers do not understand us. Those Bible thumpers who do not stand up and endorse the evil of this generation, those people who don't stand up and endorse the evil that we celebrate and all of those things that we embrace, those people are bigoted and they're intolerant and they're fools themselves. That's what they'll tell you. Those people are narrow-minded homophobes. And I want you to know that you shouldn't be surprised by that. You shouldn't be shocked when you hear people talking like that about you. Because what it is, is it's the darkened mind of godless man calling evil good and good evil. That's what that is. That's what you're hearing. It's the sin-bound mouth of fools teaching other fools that wisdom and virtue of God is foolishness. It's the sin-bound minds of godless people telling everyone else that good is evil. That's what that is. But what does Proverb 1 tell us? Look at verse 7. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, read on. Fools despise wisdom, and they despise instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. The fool despises the wisdom of the fear of the Lord. That's what he's saying here. He despises the notion that he would need to honor and worship God. He despises the notion that he would have to put God before himself. 
And that's what the Proverbs mean by wisdom. It's talking about the knowledge of God. That's what wisdom is. It's talking about honoring God and living by His standards. That's wisdom. It's honoring God. And the fool hates that. The fool in his heart has decided that there is no God, so I don't have to live by a godly standard. So listen, even the one who has come to church week after week after week and has been taught the Word of God is a fool if he refuses to submit to the Word of God and to live by its standards. Think about that. That's why it's such a shame to me to see people who sit in the church day in and day out. It's a shame to me to see people who hear the honest instruction of Scripture walk right out the door and live just like the people of the rest of the world. They walk right out the door after having heard the truth and seen the light, and they return to darkness. They have the truth, but they are fools because they despise its wisdom and they despise its instruction. They listen to the Word of God as it explains to them, as it is explained to them, and they will and deliberately turn around, walk right out the door, and they choose to ignore the instruction so that they can live like fools. Is that hard teaching? Listen, hearing the Word of God must be accompanied by doing the Word of God. That's James 1.22. Hearing the Word of God must be accompanied by doing the Word of God. You must take action on what you hear. If not, my friends, James says that you're deceived. James says that you're a fool if you do that. When you hear the instruction of the Word of God and you are ignoring it, basically you are saying there is no God. It is for you to say, that's good for you, but I will rule myself. That's good for you, but I will decide how my life will go. And for you to do that, my friends, is to set your plans and your will as higher than that of God, and it's for you to usurp the position of God. It's to set yourself up as a God yourself. It's to say there is no God. And if you're doing that, I just want you to know that the Bible teaches that you're a fool. That's not Scott Harms. That's what the Word of God is teaching here. Why would you waste your time listening to the Word of God if you're not going to do it? Why would you listen to it if you're not going to take action on it? Do you know that you just make yourself more responsible? Do you know that you are only going to receive a greater level of condemnation the more informed you become and the more you refuse to accept the instruction, the more you refuse to take action on it? All you're doing is storing up for yourself greater condemnation. That's what the Bible teaches. So in verse 15, Paul says that you have to look carefully how you walk. Think about what you're doing. Look carefully how you walk around. And what he means is that you have to be precise. You have to be exact as you make your way through the gauntlet of this world. You have to be very careful what you're doing. Make sure that you have carefully considered every single step that you take. Be sure that you have considered the future impact of your decisions before you act. Before you decide to take your next step, you need to be sure that you have looked closely enough to determine that when your foot lands, it's not going to lead you into a pit or into a snare. You need to look ahead. You need to be watching very closely. You need to consider what you're doing. Watch very closely, my friends, how you conduct yourselves as a pattern of life, that your actions are those of people who are wise and not the actions of people who are fools. That's what Paul is telling us. 
Be sure that you're surrounding yourselves with people who are light rather than people who are darkness. Be sure that you're surrounding yourselves with the right people. And why does Paul want us to be so careful? Have you thought about that? Why do we need to be so careful? Because, listen, one false step and you may find yourself falling into a place where you are living like a fool as a pattern of life rather than living like the one who is wise, rather than living like people of your privileged position who have seen what is good and have tasted the Holy Spirit and have seen the light, why would you turn around and go back into abject darkness? Why would you do that? How often do you ask yourselves the question, how is the decision that I'm making right now going to impact my witness to the rest of the world? How is the action that I'm taking right now going to distinguish me as someone who walks in the light rather than darkness? Do you ever ask yourself that? You should. That's what Paul is saying. I want to move on. But before we go to verse 16, I'd like to jump forward if I could to verse 17 and we'll make our way back. But let's take a look now at verse 17. This is what it says. Therefore, based on what you've already heard, do not be foolish. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we can clearly see that it is foolish not to understand the will of the Lord. Do you see that here? I'm going to read that again. Therefore, do not be foolish, but on the other hand, understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you see that? So what Paul is saying is that it is foolish for you to not understand the will of the Lord. I think we all want to understand the will of the Lord, don't we? Often when I hear people talk about it, I'm afraid they overcomplicate it. I think they make it more difficult than it has to be. They'll say, oh, I want to know what God's will is for my life. Do you think it's God's will for me to marry this person or that person? Do you think it's God's will for me to work at this company or that company? Is it God's will for me to do, you know, whatever? And it always makes me think of the man who was desperately trying to determine the will of God for his own life. And he was trying to determine if it was God's will for him to go into the mission field. And so he began to pray and he was fasting. And after he had been fasting for many days, just an extended time of fasting, he picked up a magazine. And as he opened the magazine to a random page, he looked down and there before him in the magazine was a map of Turkey. So this to him was a message from God. God wants me to go to Turkey, man. I've got to, I've got to take action. So he sold everything he owned. He made his way to Turkey to go onto the mission field. He was absolutely thrilled. He was convinced that he'd heard the word of God. He was convinced that he'd heard his answer from God. And so off he went to do his work. And after he'd been there for a short time, his labor was unfruitful. He was miserable. And he returned home and he was sorrowful. He was penniless. And he felt completely rejected. One day as he called out to God and he shouted, God, why did you tell me to go to Turkey only to be a failure? And God responded to him, I said, I wasn't telling you to go to Turkey. I was telling you to have a sandwich for lunch. The man struggled to hear the Word of God, to hear the will of God, didn't he? And I think it's sometimes like that. People will be walking around and they'll see a page of a book open to something and they say, oh, here it is. I just automatically, just God directed me because there was a, a map of Turkey in the magazine and I just happened to open up there. And I don't think that's the way it works. I don't want to help you understand it. Because I want you to understand that the Bible does say what the will of God is for your life. It's important. You need to know that. It's, it's not a joke. My favorite author wrote a book that's called Found God's Will. It's John MacArthur. And in this book, he explored the, what Scripture says about God's will. And I want to share a couple of things with you. It's very, very good. And so I just want to share a couple of things with you. 
But before you get into that, the very first thing that you need to know, this is super important. If it is foolish to not understand the will of God, and if God wants us to live as wise, don't you think He wants us to know His will? If He wants you to know His will, do you think He would hide it from you? Why would He do that? He wants you to know His will. Why would He hide it from you? He doesn't hide it from you. What He's done is He's outlined it very clearly in the pages of Scripture because He wants you to find it. He's done it because He wants you to understand it. And so He's put it there so that it might be easily discerned. So let me help you through that. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. This is what it says. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Does it sound like the will of God to you? God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So listen, it is God's will that you be saved and that you know the truth. What is truth? Somebody asked Jesus that one time, and in praying, Jesus says in John 17, 17, what is truth? Your word is truth. So listen, he wants you to be saved, and he wants you to know the word of God. That's what he wants. That is his will. It is his will for you to be saved. It is his will for you to know the word of God. Next week, we're going to talk about verse 18, where Paul tells us that we are not to be drunk, but we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So next week, make sure you come back. You're going to hear a theology of alcohol and drunkenness. And we're going to develop it a little bit more next week. But you need to understand that the point is, Paul is saying that it is God's will that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he wants you to be saved, and he wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the next thing. Let me give you the third one. Look at this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Friends, to be sanctified is to be more mature in your relationship with God every day. That's what that means. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Sanctification is the lifelong process of weeding out the behaviors that don't honor God. It's the lifelong process of tearing out the behaviors that are behaviors of darkness and replacing them with the behaviors that do honor God with behaviors that reflect the light. That is God's will for your sanctification. It's your spiritual growth. He wants you to grow. I'm amazed by people who will flock to churches where they have no hope for spiritual growth. We grow them an inch deep and a mile wide. Friends, we need to be in a place where the Word of God is taught so that you can be sanctified, so that you can be made strong, so that you can be grown up in the Word of God. That's what the instruction of Scripture says. It's God's will that you grow spiritually. Let me take you to 1 Peter 2.13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There because, look at this, for this is the what? This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Did you catch that? This is what it says. It is God's will that fools, people who do not know God, will be silenced by you subjecting yourselves to people who are in authority over you. Do you see that? He's saying you need to subject yourselves to the people that he has established as authority over you, and you need to do it joyfully so that those unbelievers, those people who don't know God, will be silenced by your submission to leadership. So whether you agree with their politics or not, whether you like them personally or not, we need to be quiet and we need to submit to them because God receives glory when we do that. So listen, it's very simple. Be saved. Know the Word of God. Be guided and controlled by the Holy Spirit so that you can become mature in your faith and submit to the people that God has put in authority over you. That's the will of God. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? You know, if you do these things, 
You're doing the will of God for your life. That's the will of God for your life. Now listen, take joy in those things. Take joy in doing those things. Delight in those things because that is the will of God. You understand? What does the psalmist say about people who delight themselves in doing the will of the Lord? Look at Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will do what? Give you the desires of your heart. Keep going. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Listen, when I moved to Milwaukee back in 99, July 4th of 99, I met my beautiful wife. I want you to know that after I met her, I looked through all the pages of Scripture and I studied closely and I never ever found a passage that said, Scott, it is God's will for you to marry Beth. I looked hard and it wasn't there. I never found a passage that said, Scott, it is God's will that you work at XYZ Company. I looked and it wasn't there. And so I was paralyzed and I couldn't move forward, right? No. You know what I found? I found that as I began to delight in the Lord, I found that as I began to find my joy in my salvation, I found that as I developed my knowledge of God by studying His Word, I found that as I allowed the Holy Spirit to guide me, I found that as I began to grow in spiritual maturity, as I began to submit to the people who in authority over me, God put the right desires in my heart. You see, as I became more committed to the Lord... And as I trusted him more, he, Psalm 37 says, acted and he put the right desires in my heart and I didn't have to worry about it. I could delight myself in the Lord and then I had the desire of my heart. I want you to know that that's the key to knowing God's will. If you're doing the things that he has outlined in his will in Scripture, very important. If you're doing the things that he declares to be his will in Scripture, you can trust that he will act You can trust that He will put the right desires in your heart. You can trust that when you act, you are acting on God's will. Do you understand? Look very closely where you're stepping. Look very closely what you're doing. Because if your action is the action of a fool, don't do that thing. I want you to listen to this. This is very, very important. So please listen to what I'm about to tell you and take action on it, okay? Listen closely. God will not put the desire in your heart to do the things that the people of the darkness are doing. He will put the desire in your heart to do the things that are consistent with people who live as children of light. You understand? Listen, you can be sure that if you are a believer and you are a single person, and you feel a desire in your heart to be with a particular person, and that person does not delight himself in the Lord, you can be sure that that is not a desire that came from God. Because you're not walking according to the will of God. You can be sure of that. If you delight yourself in the Lord, and you're submitting to the Holy Spirit and growing spiritually, and you feel a desire in your heart to work for a certain company, and it doesn't cause you to violate any of the principles of God's will as I just outlined them for you, if that company is not one that promotes evil and it's not a company that entices people to do things that dishonor God and you have trusted God and you feel that He has acted to put the desire in your heart, go to work for that company. Can it be that easy? Can it really be that simple? Delight yourself in the Lord. 
Delight yourself in following His will and He will act to put the right desires in your heart and you can be sure that you're going to take action that is consistent with the will of God. Don't complicate it. Delight yourself in His will. Don't make it too hard. Through the Holy Spirit, He'll put the right desires in your heart. That's what will happen. So before we wrap it up this morning, I want to take you back to verse 16. Because it's verse 16 out of this whole section of Scripture. Verse 16 is the one that today's passage is all about. Okay, And this is what it says making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The ancient Greeks had a couple of words for time. And in order to really understand what Paul is trying to teach us here, I think it's important that we understand the concept of time from the ancient Greek mind. First of all, there was the word chronos, uh, which is where we get our word chronology. Chronos is a definite time period. It's clock time if you think about it. Kronos is is time as you and I know it, as it's relative to earth. You see, the earth rotates, and each time the earth rotates, it causes us to experience day, and it causes us to experience night. That's one day, right? That's Kronos. It's a fixed Kronos. It's a fixed place in time. The earth makes one entire trip around the sun. We have one what? One year, right? That's Kronos. That's a chronology. It's a fixed point in time. So it's the kind of time that we think about when we talk about the length of life. Do you understand? That's chronology. That's chronos. Now, super important to grasp that. There's another kind of time, and it's best translated to English as the right time. This is the critical time. This is the opportune moment. This is the kind of time where the conditions are absolutely perfect to take a crucial action. It's what we call the critical moment. Do you know what that is? Do you think you know what that word is? It's kairos. And that's the word that's used in Ephesians 5.16. Why is that significant? I want you to take a look at this image of kairos again. This is kairos. He's the opportune moment. It was this kind of time that Lucifer was trying to sculpt here when he made kairos. Look closely at him. Because this was the understanding of Lucifer. This was his understanding of the critical time when conditions are absolutely perfect for you to take a crucial action. And Poseidopus understood what Lucifer was trying to say. Poseidopus understood that, and it was his understanding of Kairos that inspired him to write the inscription at the bottom of this great sculpture. And I want to read it to you now. This is what it says. Take a look at the sculpture. Who are you? I'm Kairos, the all-subduer. Why do you stand on tiptoe? Because I'm always running. Why do you have a pair of wings on your feet? Because I fly with the wind. Why is your hair over your face? For the one who meets me to grasp me. Why is the back of your head bald? Because none whom I have once raced by on my winged feet will now, though he wishes, take hold of me from behind. You see? And he goes on to say, The artist fashioned me in such a shape for your sake, stranger. And he set me up in the portico as a lesson. Isn't that a great commentary? Think about that. That's exactly what Paul is trying to say to you in this passage of Ephesians chapter 5 today. He's saying, be careful how you walk. Think carefully about every step 
that you take, make sure that you are understanding what the will of God is. Because when Kairos comes flying by, when the critical moment finally arrives, you have a split second and you must be prepared to snatch it by the hair and cash in on it. Because it's gone in a flash. It's gone. And once it's flown by, you can never recapture Kairos. He's gone. Do you know that our lives are short from a chronology standpoint? The chronos of our lives is short. James 4.14 says, what is your life? You're just a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Friends, I'm convinced that at the end of my life, people who survive me won't be talking about the chronos of my life. They won't be talking about how long my vapor lingered. They won't be talking about how many days I was around. But it's my hope that those people who survive me will instead be talking about the kairos of my life, you see? And how often I seized him when he came along. I want them to talk about the critical moments when I showed them the sacrificial love as opposed to the love of my own self-seeking. That's what I want them to talk about. I want them to reflect on the right time for me to share the love of Christ with someone in need, and I did it. I want them to say, I remember when the perfect time came along for my dad to do a work for the kingdom of Christ and he grabbed it by the hair and he pulled it down and he cashed in and he and a group of people planted a church in Franklin and as a result, God did a great work in the city of Franklin. That's what I want him to say. I want them to think about the critical moment in their lives when they stood at the fork in the road between foolishness and wisdom and their dad seized the opportunity to drive foolishness from their hearts and lovingly guide them toward the wisdom of Christ. I want my wife to look back and say, when Scott saw that critical moment in my life that I needed love, he tackled Kairos and he held on to him and he showed me sweet compassion. And he showed me selfless sacrifice. That's what I want him to say. I want my family to say that I captured Kairos every time he came along and that I took every single opportunity to honor God. Because I don't know the chronos of my life and I don't know how many times Kairos will come flying by in that short chronos. Do you understand? But what I do know is that every time he comes along, I have an opportunity to seize Him as long as I'm watching carefully where I step and I'm living as wise and not a fool. Listen, Lucifer was right. Once the right time has come and gone, you cannot capture it. It's gone. Your life is short and you're only going to get so many opportunities. And so I want to ask you, Are you cashing in on every single opportunity to live as wise? Are you cashing in on every opportunity to honor God? Or do you make foolish decisions and live like those people who are in darkness? What do you do? That's the message to you this morning. I believe that the Holy Spirit wants us to seize the opportunity to distinguish ourselves from people who do not know God. That's the message of Ephesians 5.15. I believe that Kairos is approaching many of you today. And I believe that if you've never committed your life to the love and the service of Jesus Christ, that this is that critical moment. Kairos is passing you by. Grab the opportunity and don't let it slip past you. Some of you are in a critical place in your relationships. 
And you need to capture the opportunity to love sacrificially and selfishly so that God receives glory for that. Don't wait. Don't wait another day because once the opportunity is gone, it's gone. I believe that some of you are at a place where you feel in your heart that God would have you do a service for His kingdom. He would have you do a work for His kingdom. I don't know what it is. You probably know. Maybe He would have you serve in His body. Maybe He would have you to teach. Maybe He'd have you to do some sort of leadership. I don't know what it is. Maybe He wants you to serve people by giving or by cleaning, whatever it is. Maybe He's even impressing on your heart that you should host or lead a life group. Listen, friends, what are you waiting for? Why are you waiting? If you're walking in the will of God, if you're delighting yourself in Him, and the desire is in your heart, it's from God. What are you waiting on? Grab it. Seize the opportunity. Because once it's gone, it's gone. I don't know. Kairos is approaching many of you quickly. Wings on his feet. Will you grab him? Will you cash in on him? Before it's too late, going back to verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Father, I thank You so much for Your love and for Your compassion. I thank You for Your kindness, Lord, that has brought us to this place of repentance. I thank you for your willingness to love us and sacrifice for us, even at times when we weren't very lovable. Lord, I would just pray that for those who are here today who know that this message is for them, they know that Kairos is quickly approaching, and they know that it's the will of God that they seize him. I pray, God, that you would embolden them, that you would empower them, that they would not wait, but they would act at that critical moment to do the thing that honors God and to do the right thing. Lord, I pray that you would help Root River Church to be a church that is characterized by people who are walking circumspectly. There are people who are watching closely where they step and how they walk so that they live a life that tells the world that we are people of light, we are people of wisdom, we are not people of foolishness and darkness. I pray, Lord, that you would allow our testimony to this world to be a sharp rebuke, that it would be a sharp witness to them, and that it would be a sharp invitation to step into the light and taste the goodness of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name.